So how many of you like to watch those old detective movies like Columbo? Any Columbo fans here? Perry Mason? What about Matlock? So, Matlock personally was my absolute favorite. I loved watching his show as well as the others. Wasn't really a fan of Columbo. Thought those episodes were way too long. Couldn't keep my attention span. (laughs) But anyway, what made these shows so enjoyable was that every single episode you had a new mystery. Now, usually with Matlock, it was someone who was falsely accused of something and his job was to prove their innocence. So you go through a whole episode of twists and turns with the main character following the clues until finally he solved the mystery. Well, this morning we're going to do a little bit of detective work. We're going to be looking at a church that's in scripture that was extremely successful. They seem to be doing everything perfectly right. At least it looked that way on the outside. But on the inside, we see that there's something that was hurting this church. And if it wasn't reversed, it would lead to this church's eventual decline. Now, while today's message deals with a church, it's applicable to every single one of us as individuals. So in the same way this church had to evaluate itself or check itself, we too as well, specifically with our heart. This is where the title of the sermon, Heart Check, came from. So this morning, we're going to do a heart check and see what is happening with our heart spiritually. So I'm guessing that if you're going to go to a book in scriptures to read about your heart, Revelation probably would be the last book you'd go to. But that's going to be where we're going to be sitting in this morning and studying from. We're going to be speaking from Revelations chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Again, it's Revelation 2, 1 through 7. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, the word revelation simply means revealing, but it's also where the English word apocalypse comes from. Now, if you hear the word apocalypse, you automatically think of chaos and destruction. You are not alone. That word has become synonymous with chaos and destruction, disasters. Think about a lot of the movies out now. They're talking about the apocalypse. But in reality, it's not that intimidating of a word. Revelation means to uncover, to reveal, or to make manifest something. So you see, in Revelations, we see the Holy Spirit revealing or pulling back the curtain, allowing us to see the fulfillment of his purpose. God is showing us his plans for his church. 
Now, the author of Revelation was the Apostle John, who also wrote the Gospel of John, as well as the three epistles, also named John. I think he could be a little more creative with his naming, but... But it was written during the time of the Roman Empire when Titus Flavius Domitian was the emperor and he demanded that he was to be worshipped as a god. Now you can see how this would naturally lead to widespread persecution throughout the empire because we know not to worship people who aren't God. And so John was one of these people who was persecuted. He was arrested and he was sent to the island of Patmos a prison colony on the coast of Asia Minor. Now, I know an island in the Mediterranean off the coast of Asia Minor sounds kind of attractive. We'd probably like to go and spend a weekend there. But let me tell you, this island was not a nice sandy beach. It was very rocky. If you ever Googled a picture of it, you'd see that it's basically a bunch of jagged rocks just sitting up from the ground. It pretty much is worthless, hence the reason it became a prison colony. So while the book of Revelation was originally sent to seven churches in Asia Minor, John, as I said, meant for any believer to be able to read it and profit from its words. And so in this passage or this section of Revelation, John is writing about seven specific revelations to seven specific churches that Jesus was speaking through him to. And this is where our passage comes in, is to the church in Ephesus, the same church that Paul wrote his letter to, known as Ephesians. Now, Ephesus, out of these seven cities, was considered to be the most major city of them all. Even though Pergamum was considered the capital city, Ephesus had the honor of being the greatest city, to the point where their proconsul, which was their equivalent of a governor, when he was basically inaugurated, he was required to go through Ephesus before any other city because of its importance. Ephesus was also a huge commercial center. It was right in the center. It had a major seaport that connected it to highways that took it throughout the rest of Asia Minor. And it also was a major religious center where religion and magic were woven together. So this was extremely popular. We know that the Romans had many gods when they took over the Greek empire. They took the Greek gods and made them their own. And in Ephesus, they especially liked the mixing of magic and religion together. And so Ephesus was a major hotspot of this, specifically for the Greek goddess Artemis, which we'll come to in a little bit. But getting back to the church of Ephesus, it was planted by Paul, who spent over two years establishing it. Timothy also spent some time there, and tradition says John lived there into his old age as well. So in these verses that we read was specifically for the church in Ephesus. And when you look at it, you can split it into three different sections. Those are going to be our three main points this morning. So the first one comes from verses 1 through 3. And this is where we see a theme of praise for the church in Ephesus. We see this a lot throughout the New Testament, a theme of whether it's Paul or one of the other authors. They praise the audience or the church they're writing to before then following that up with some correction and then some more instructions of how they can turn back from that. This is no different. It talks about the praise in verses 1 through 3. So remember, when John wrote this, he wasn't just coming up with his own words. These were the words coming from the Holy Spirit. So when he's writing this, he's actually writing the Holy Spirit's words. 
And so Jesus is saying that the Ephesian church was a serving church. They were doing the they're busy doing the works of the Lord. So this would be the more general things, such as serving their community, serving those in need, the homeless, the widows, the orphans. And they were doing this, and they were doing it very well. Jesus also said they were a sacrificing church. Uh, in Scripture, it uses the word labor, which means to toil to the point of exhaustion. Anyone ever been in that circumstance before? A few people? Don't want to admit it? <laughs> So yeah, and so that's what the Ephesian church was doing. They were literally laboring and sacrificing so much in their ministry that they were giving everything they physically had until they had no more energy. They were paying a price to serve the Lord. And finally, Jesus went on to say they were a patient or steadfast church. The word patience is talking about the meaning of endurance under trial. But being a believer in Ephesus was not an easy thing to be. We just talked about how they paid a dear price physically by giving all their time, all their resources. We also talked about how they were forced to worship their emperor. And so if you're a believer not worshiping the emperor, it's going to be a pretty tough place for you to be. So this was a really hard place to be a believer, but this church stood firm amidst all this persecution, amidst all these trials. And there's several different examples throughout Scripture where you can find warnings about those who might try and sway us from serving God through false teachers or false doctrines. John writes in 1 John 4.1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So as the church, we have many false teachings or things that oppose God's directions for us. Now, it's easy when we look at the New Testament of seeing false teachers and false doctrines. We don't really have a bunch of people walking up to us in our day-to-day lives trying to talk theology with us. But we do have things that come between us and God, things of the world that are kind of driving a wedge between us and our relationship of God. And so this is what John was talking about with the church in Ephesus, as well as us here today. So the church in Ephesus, as I said, they were really good at standing up against false teachers. Anytime someone came and taught them something, they would compare it to Scripture. If they couldn't find something in Scripture to back it up, they knew it was a false teacher and refused to listen to it. They tested the spirits. They questioned what people said and compared it to the Word. And they did not waver. They did not give in to the false teachers that we see throughout the New Testament that other churches were doing. In Acts 20.29, Paul is foretelling that the Ephesian church would once be troubled by savage wolves. We can find that fulfillment through these trials that they were now facing. So they separated themselves from these false teachers and these false doctrines, and while doing this, they were a suffering church that patiently bore their burdens and toiled without fainting. Essentially, the Ephesian church did not take their faith lightly. They were passionate for Christ, and they were passionate to be followers of Christ to the point where they were willing to pay for it. Now let's imagine that you're going to get your mail. You go get the big handful of mail, you weed through all the junk mail, you weed through all the bills, all the boring stuff, and then you find one letter that stands out. It stands out because it's a personalized letter. 
It has the address written. It's not printed. You open it up, and it's this beautifully written, handwritten letter. And in it, you see words telling you how much you served the Lord, talking about how much you've labored for Christ, how much you've sacrificed for him, how patient you were, how steadfast you were, how strong you were against the teachings of the world, and how everything you did brought honor honor and glory to God. Then you get to the end of the letter and you find out that Jesus himself wrote this. I mean, that would be a pretty impactful letter. I mean, you might kind of doubt if it was true or not, but let's just say you do believe it's a true letter. That would be very significant. That would be a life-changing moment. So that's what's happening with the Ephesian church. They're getting this letter that's telling them all the amazing things that they are doing. So they deserved this praise. The church in Ephesus was the model church of that time. Some scholars estimate that the congregation numbered about 15,000 people. Now, even by today's standards, that's a pretty big church, pretty impactful church. So when you talk about biblical times, and the population was a lot lower, and you talk about the persecution, this is a huge church. They're doing a lot of things right, and they're standing against persecution. They served, they suffered, and they stood firm. So when you read about the church in Ephesus, it can be a little convicting. I know it was for me when I was reading this. When you look at all the things that the Ephesian church was doing amidst all the challenges, it's a little convicting for us here today. We might at times think we might be suffering, and while we do go through difficult times, I don't think many of us have truly suffered for our faith. And there's churches all around the globe, even today, who have to worship in secret or even be arrested. Think of churches in Iran and in China who they have to worship in basements or in cellars, and those two nations have some of the fastest growing churches on our planet. And thinking about other churches where they have to worship in fear of their church building being set on fire or being attacked while they're worshiping. So there are so many people that have to literally take their lives into their hands in order to worship God. So this is the same kind of suffering that the church in Ephesus was enduring. But even amidst it, they were able to continue serving others. They were able to worship God, labor for him, and remain steadfast for him. So when you look at this passage, it seems like this is the perfect church, doing the perfect things and even suffering for them. As we continue to my next point, we can start to see a small problem arising. And so the next point comes from verse 4. And that's the problem. So what happens? What caused the demise of a church in Ephesus that numbered 15,000? A church that was doing so many amazing things for Christ. Never really hear about the church in Ephesus beyond this too much. I mean, it's not there anymore. You don't never hear about a dramatic occurrence happening where the church disappeared. So what was it that caused a church this big to go away? And think about a church in our area. If there's a church that had 15,000 that just shut up shop and closed down, we'd probably be talking about it, or at least asking some questions. So verse 4 says, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you left your first love. So this is what it all comes down to for the church in Ephesus. They left their first love. So what is first love? 
Well, for the church in Ephesus, this was when Paul planted the church. They were excited. They were passionate for the gospel. They were passionate for Christ. This was what was motivating them to go out and take care of the orphans, of taking care of the widows, of ministering to those who were lost. This is what fueled them as they were able to do all these things amidst persecution. And this is what they had forgotten. They no longer loved Christ like they did at the beginning. What we do for the Lord is important, but, also, but so is why we do it. So as the Ephesian church was still doing all these amazing things for the church, for Jesus, and Jesus was praising them for all these things, but they weren't doing it for God, then who were they doing it for? Any guesses? Yes, themselves. Good job, guys. <laughs> so they were doing it for themselves. Over time, the Ephesian church turned from being a body of Christ followers to becoming a religion. Religion is when we do acts of devotion and affection with selfish motives. Or it's righteous actions with selfish motivations. Throughout Scripture, we can see that God hates religion. In Isaiah 1.13, God says, Stop bringing meaningless offerings, and that he can't bear the evil assemblies. In the next verse, he goes on to say he hates their festivals and feasts. It's referring to a lot of the Old Testament festivals that the Jews would go to. They would celebrate these festivals, but they weren't doing it for the right reasons. And when we look in the New Testament, we can read about Jesus turning the money tables in the temple in Matthew 21. Religion equals selfishness in the guise of selflessness and service. So why do we do the things we do? Why do we go to church? Why do we serve in the church? Why do we give to the church? Think of it this way. When we're giving to the offering, when we're giving to the church, are we giving out of our love for Christ? Are we giving to honor him? Are we just doing it because we know it's what we're supposed to do? Or that it's another good thing we can check off doing for Christ because we know we'll get it back in return. Is it out of our love for Christ or is it out of our love for ourselves? The motives of our actions matter. Let's say you did something to upset or hurt your spouse or if you're not married, your best friend. You decide to get them flowers or candy or some kind of gift to make up. Why are you giving them that gift? Is it out of a genuine love to show them that you are sorry? Or is it simply a gift that you're hoping will distract them and help them forget whatever it is that you did to hurt them? Motives matter. If you give that gift for the wrong motive, it ends up causing more damage than what you started with. In order to serve Christ faithfully, we have to continue to love him fervently. In Paul's epistle to the Ephesian church, he emphasized their exalted position in Christ and in the heavenly places. They had a very elevated position. They were doing all those amazing things. But Paul was writing that they lost their motives. They were doing it with the wrong motives. They lost their love for God as well as their love for each other. Essentially, they had lost their spiritual heartbeat. So what happens to the body when the heartbeat stops? It dies. So without a heartbeat, our body can no longer function. In the same way, Jesus is saying this is what will happen to the Ephesian church. This is what will happen to us as believers 
if we fail to turn back to our first love. We need to restart our hearts. We need to check our hearts. So this leads me to my third point, which is the promise found in verses 5 through 7. This is where the Ephesian church is told how they can return to their first love. Their first love and our first love can be restored by following these three simple steps in verse 5. To make it easy, they all start with an R. The first is to remember. The Ephesian church must remember and continue to remember what they have lost and cultivate a desire to have that once again, to regain that communion that they once had with Christ. In order for them to regain what was lost, they have to remember what they once had, or else they will forget and find themselves in the same situation all over again. William Barclay writes a story about why remembering is so important. He said there was a lad who had been brought up in a village, and in the village school he sat next to a girl, innocent and sweet. The lad found his way to the city and fell into bad company. He became an expert pickpocket. He was on the street one day, and he had, just picked a, he had just picked a pocket, a neat job, well done, and he was very pleased with himself. Suddenly, he saw the girl he used to sit, back, sit with back at school, and she was, the still, she was still the same innocent and sweet girl. She didn't see him. He took care, took care of that. But suddenly, he realized what had been. He realized what now was. His memory was offering him the way back. When the Ephesian church forgot their first love, it wasn't something that happened overnight. It was something that happened over time. This is why it's so important for them to continue to remember their past, where they were, how their motives have changed, and what they should strive to return to once again. The second thing they were to do to return to their first love is to repent. Like any sin, in order to have forgiveness, we first have to repent. There has to be a conscious decision where we're changing our mindset to stop living in that sin, after which we then confess that sin to our Lord. You can see this in 1 John 1.19 when he says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Finally, the third step is to repeat or do the first works that had once been done. So for the Ephesian church, this meant for them going back to their love of Christ, as well as their love of others. This love that motivated them at the beginning of their ministry. They needed to restore that original fellowship they once had with Christ that had been broken by their neglect and lack of love. So in verse 5, we see that Christ gave the Ephesian church a way to redeem themselves a way for them to restart their hearts so that it will begin beating once again. Now think about what happens if our heart stops. If we're at a hospital or maybe you've seen a movie where the heart stops, what do they normally do? They resuscitate. They use the AED device, electronic paddles, where this charges electricity, and it just shocks your heart back into rhythm. So look at it this way. If your physical heart stops... That's normally what we do to get it back into rhythm. This is what God is calling the Ephesian church to do. He's calling us to do, essentially use an AED to restart our spiritual heart for him. But just as with your physical heart, 
If you have an AED device next to you, it's not going to do much good if you just leave it sitting next to you or if someone just sets it next to you. They have to actually move. They have to actually put it on you and push the button. In the same way, God is not forcing us to do this. He's providing a way for us to return to him, but we have to actually do it. We have to actually follow his directions. In the second half of verse 5, the Ephesian church is being told that if they fail to come back, that he will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So they have their directions. They are told what they can do to go back, but they're also told what will happen if they do not. The lampstand in verse 5 represents the Ephesian church. In spite of the privileges that the Ephesian church has enjoyed, it was now in danger of losing its light. The church or believer that loses its love for Christ or for others will soon lose its light as well. Just as God lit a spiritual fire in the church in Ephesus, he's also lit one in us when we've acknowledged him, when we've made him Lord and Savior over our life. God will light this fire, but we have to tend to it. We have to keep it going. If we don't repent of our sins and restart our heart, this fire will go out. When we read verse 7, we can see two things I want to take note of. The first is when he says, He who has an eye, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this is again saying that while this was written to the church in Ephesus, it was also written to any believer who hears it or sees it applying to us here today as we read these very words. So it makes it clear that no matter what others around us do, that we as individuals are still able to trust the Lord, no matter the circumstances that we encounter. The second thing I want to take note of is in the second half of verse 7, when he says, To him whoever comes I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of the garden. Now when we think of the tree of life, what do we think of? Yes, the Garden of Eden. You guys are getting better. So we're thinking about the Garden of Eden. When we look at Genesis chapter 2, we can read about the Tree of Life. We see the story of how God created the Tree of Life, as well as the Tree of Good and Knowledge and Evil. This was the tree that Adam and Eve were forbidden to eat from, and we know that they gave in to temptation, ate the fruit, and brought brought sin into the world. They were banished from this garden, including access to the Tree of Life. The ongoing battle against the sin they brought into the world can be seen all throughout the Old Testament until Christ came into the picture and gave his life by dying on the cross. You can see this as the new tree of life. His death on the cross is what allows us to have eternal life. You see, this passage would have been very relatable to the church in Ephesus. We talked about how they were a hot spot for pagan worship, and one of them was Artemis. This was where the main temple to Artemis was, and it was an immaculate temple that was once considered one of the wonders of the world. Well, Artemis was the goddess of three things. It was the goddess of war. If you're going to war, you pray to Artemis for power and peace. It was the goddess of harvest. If you needed food, provision, or good crops, you prayed to Artemis. It was also the goddess of fertility. You prayed to Artemis for children or the gift of life. So basically, if you lived in Ephesus and you were seeking peace, provision, or life, Artemis was who you prayed to. So essentially, 
people in Ephesus were praying to this false god for just about everything. Well, in this temple to Artemis, there was a tree. It was called the Tree of Asylum. Anyone who touched this tree, whether they were a criminal or just running away from something, would be safe as long as they were touching this Tree of Asylum located in the temple. So the Ephesians were very familiar with the concept of a tree of refuge. Jesus was telling them that they were going to the wrong tree, that they should instead be looking to him, the tree of life for deliverance. He was calling them to restart their hearts and redirect them towards him. As I said before, the last step to restore their first love was to return to the things that they did before they neglected their love of God. But as they do those things, he's saying that they need to turn to him as they do it. The Ephesian church's problem was not what they were doing. As we said, they were doing incredible things for Christ. The problem was why they were doing them. They let their aim shift from doing these things for God and instead doing them for themselves. God was telling them to continue doing these good works. He's telling them and us to go to church, to read and memorize scripture, to worship him, to give to the church, to serve others. But he's saying to do it with the aim and purpose of pleasing God and nothing else. If they do this, if we do this, it will create love. Going back to our example of marriage, right action with the wrong intention does not create love and feelings. In the same way, wrong actions plus right intentions do not create love. What creates love is when you do the loving thing out of real loving care for them. And the same is true as we walk with Christ. Our bottom line this morning is we need to realign our hearts to the truth of Jesus Christ. We need to look back and see where we might have gone astray, where we started to eat the wrong fruits, and instead turn back to the tree of life. We need to continue and do the things God has called us to, but again, doing them for the right reasons. My first application point is that we need to evaluate our spiritual heart condition. In the same way that you go to have your heart checked at the doctor's office, we need to examine our spiritual heart as well. We need to examine the motives behind why we do the things we do. Are you doing good works and acts of service and worshiping God with the aim, of, aim and motive of truly loving him? Or is it more so a motive of loving yourself? This leads to my second application point, that we need to continue to grow in our spiritual health. So usually after you have an evaluation, the next step is determined by the results. If you're healthy, you keep doing what you're doing. If you're not healthy, generally you need to make some changes in your life. So if you found that your motives for following God aren't what he desires, take some time and pray that God will help you restart your heart. It'll help you realign your heart to his. That your motives would be pure, that they would bring glory to him. He wants to help heal our hearts, but we have to want it as well, and we have to ask him to help us. And if this isn't you, then I encourage you to pray that God will continue to help you stay on the right path with the right motives. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for these words from Revelation this morning. I thank you for this 
letter that was written to the church in Ephesus, God. And I just ask that you would help us to learn from them, God. That you would help us to realign our hearts so that they are bringing honor to you, God. That everything we do would bring honor and glory to you, God, rather than ourselves. Let's pray all these things in your name. Amen.